0: I'm um, Bruce from Oscar
1: Alexandria, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Alexia from Children of bottom and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, we're the Butcher Babies, and you're listening to Iron, Iron City, City Rocks. Rocks, yeah!
0: What's up, everybody? It's Marty Friedman. You are listening to Iron City Rocks. Oh!
1: Welcome to episode 402 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, and heavy metal talk on the net. Episode 402, we have uh, got a guest for you that we have been after for a very, very long time. We are joined today by Marty Friedman, uh amazing, amazing guitarist. I've been a big fan of his uh, going back to the shrapnel days. Uh was really, really... Uh, kind of uh, inspired and moved as a guitar player by the Cacophony albums that he did with Jason Becker. Obviously, his time with Megadeth, as goes without saying, and has done just a whole host of really great work uh, since leaving Megadeth. So we're going to talk to him. He's got a new live album out, which I think uh, is kind of uh, timely because he will be coming into Pittsburgh to do a show on February 17th, an Iron City Rock show for you at the Craft House in uh, Pittsburgh. He's also doing shows all over the United States, and uh, you know he's not a guy who tours uh, to your neck of the woods every year. Uh, so it's a really great chance to get out and see him. The album, uh, the live album now, is called One Bad MF Live. Uh, it's a, I think a really really cool uh, instrumental album. Even though um, you know I said the word instrumental, and that may scare away some of you who aren't uh, guitarists who aren't shredding fans. But uh, it's instrumental in the way I would compare it maybe to a Joe Satriani Where they're instrumental pieces but very much songs Uh, They're not just three and a half minutes of him with sweep picking and and tremolo picking And and all kind of guitar geek things that you don't care about They're songs, they're melodies you're going to walk away with Uh, So it's a really, I think, a fantastic record So we're going to get into that interview with Marty in just a moment also, we're being joined by a filmmaker and fellow podcast uh, veteran, Bob Now who has done the Shockwaves uh, podcast for probably longer than we've been on the air, and we've been on the air now 10 years. I've known Bob for a very long time. He's a great guy. Has done a... Uh, Several films on Inside Metal we've uh, featured over the years, uh, th- those DVDs are available now. Well, he's got a new out, uh, film out, I'm so used to saying, out we got a new film out uh, through Cleopatra Records. This uh, documentary is called Band vs. Brand. So we're going to talk to Bob in just a little bit about what that film was about. So without further ado, we're going to get into that interview with Marty Friedman. <music> We have on the phone, Marty Friedman. How you doing, Marty? How you doing, John? I am very, very well. Thank you for taking the time out of your morning and our evening. Um, you were doing a show on the 17th of February at the Craft House. Uh, going to be a great chance for you to come back to Pittsburgh. I know it's been a long time since we've seen you here uh, to do... Uh, a night of, of what is going to be kind of face-melting guitar work. Um, can you talk first off uh, of your, your current solo tour that you're going to be embarking on here in just a few weeks? Is it going to be strictly instrumental? Or um, what what can we expect from you?
0: Oh Well, there's a lot of instrumental going on, but uh, there's also some moments that... Uh become vocal in one way or another and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of really strange musical surprises and uh, sometimes we have guests and sometimes we drag people up from the audience to play with us and and uh anything goes really and uh if you've heard the the new live album that kind of gives you an idea what it's what it's like but uh things change every single night and uh, a lot of surprises
1: uh, Marty, I have to say, the first time I listened to the album, the one thing I walked away with was scratching my head on like, what was the guitar solo from Boston he played? Cause it was just <laughs> burning all over my head until I, you know, like oh, this peace of mind. You um, Boston <laughs> fan, it was just to hear it out of the context of the entire song. It just was, it was really neat. Um, you know, to walk <laughs> Thanks with. for
0: noticing. Yeah, yeah I, we we, used, we did that. We did that because, uh, you know, Boston. Uh, I don't know what people think about them in the mainstream, but kind of. Any single person that I've met who's a guitar player loves Boston. Yeah, and uh, so, but nobody plays it. So we thought, let's just play this song. We did it originally in Boston mm-hmm. because we were in Boston. We're like, this is so fun. Let's play it every night, and and people, you know, respond to it, even though it's, you know, way older than the stuff we're doing normally yeah. it just it was a nice contrast
1: yeah i mean that was that was stuff from probably your youth I mean that, that some of that stuff goes back a long way and then
0: but, some yeah
1: yeah tom tom is such an amazing musician it's 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 kind of a shame their catalog mm. is so small but it is so choice mm. you know there there's yep. a, you know a bad song in that so um can you talk a little bit about uh, you know when you left the world of thrash um obviously you kind of went dark to a lot of American fans. You know, you went over uh, to Japan and made a very successful career to yourself, which was actually kind of an interesting time because a lot of your peers in, you know, instrumental music, in thrash, really were struggling in a period of time that, you know, mm. you kind of made what really, in hindsight, looks like a brilliant business decision. Was it a personal reason that took you over there or was it just that's where you felt you belonged?
0: It was a real
1: basic, um,
0: just a basic, uh, I'm trying to, sometimes, you know, you can't think in English, Mm -hmm. being here for so long, (laughs) I'm thinking, what I'm trying to say is it's a basic, uh, natural step to take because uh, I'd come over to Japan so many times and I'd heard Japanese music Mm -hmm. and it was just so much that I felt that I could contribute to the music scene, Mm -hmm. the music world over here and I thought that my music could grow here whereas in America I thought that, you know, the genre lines were very, very strictly enforced, you know you'd never have something like Beyonce do a full-on metal track on one of her albums but over here in Japan something of that equivalent is not only common, it's kind of almost expected, those kind of weird collaborations, and it's just, just so liberating as someone who likes to really do adventurous things with music, so I, every time I come to Japan, I'm like, you know, I'd be able to really shake things up over here if I mm-hmm. was here for good, and, and it just was a very natural decision, I mean, it seems crazy, I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, in in retrospect, it was a really good decision, but at yeah. the time. Yeah it was just one of those stupid things that you do i'm going to go to japan right now and just live there you know yeah. but i believe in any artist career it's kind of a it's a it's a compilation of many many stupid but well-intended things that you just have to do i mean uh, normal people take the safe route you know they buy the insurance they get the a stable job and they get the whole right. stability thing. But I think uh, if you're an artist, a musician, you know, a lifer in that, you're going to do a lot of things that don't make sense on paper, you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's, you know, leave a, a band that's, you know, making money and doing well and you like everybody and go somewhere where, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen, but you like the music there. I mean, that, that sounds like pretty ridiculous.
1: It's certainly a leap of faith, yeah.
0: Yeah, a leap of faith, but I I knew that, you know, it'd work out somehow. I'd make it work out because, you know, I'm a hardworking guy and uh, I'm not lazy, so I knew that if I was going to struggle, it'd be okay. But uh, I I encourage, you know, kind of crazy decisions and, and, you know, what's the worst could happen? You could fail and run home with your tail between your legs or whatever, but uh, it was a crazy thing that it worked out. Good for for me, but uh, it's been really a lot of hard work and adjusting as well, so uh, yeah. it
1: was a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned about uh, American music and, and not really liking that. I noticed that, obviously, with, you know, we talk to many musicians who end up doing, you know, the big festivals in Europe that have all kinds of different bands, um, it, which in America just doesn't happen. You know, it, we, we might see, a, a, you know, there are several guitarists, noticeable guitarists, who might go out and tour with a pop artist but it's sometimes it's almost just a visual thing, you know. They wanted the guy because he looked cool, not because there's really playing that warrants it. Um, right. So, you know, it's it's always interesting to listen to other cultures and, and hear how they embrace different things, and it, quite frankly, quite envious of that. You know, there's a lot of great. Yeah, I
0: mean, I, I agree with that. It's it's something to be envied of, you know. And uh, America's there's nothing wrong with it, but it's the purest of genres um, you know what I mean there's something mm-hmm. cool about that I remember being like 15 years old and thinking well if it didn't have loud distorted guitars I don't care what it is I hated right. it Right. and so that's cool because in you know there's purity in the genres and if that's your bag that's cool but I think as someone who's making music forever that uh, really is limiting with what what you can push yourself to do and that can get a bit frustrating
1: do you find at this point of your career that you still need to dangle carrots in front of yourself that you know i want to be able to do this or i'd like to you know i know in the album you know the live album you mentioned you know the latin influence that kind of seeped into the, to the songs um do you still kind of chase goals at this point
0: absolutely absolutely it's uh a constant constant uh not pressure, but uh, you always want to do something that uh, I feel more satisfied with than I did on the previous project or whatever it was, mm-hmm. album, and uh, you can never judge whether anything's going to be successful or not, but you certainly can decide whether you've made something that you're satisfied with and that you've evolved and become better with, so mm-hmm. you know, you stay out of the results, but stay very much into I got to top myself. I've got to do something that I feel is better. I, I don't want to look back and say, you know, that album I did five years ago was the best shit I've ever done. I'll never top mm-hmm. it. Um, the, you know, the next album is going to be better, and I'm going to work harder and all that. And so uh, it's not necessarily like I have to uh, force myself to make new goals, but uh, for some reason I just uh, want to keep getting better, and I, I think. Most people are the same, I would assume.
1: Sure. Do you... When, when it comes to what you're trying to improve upon, do you focus more at this juncture? I mean, uh, when you were like 20, you killed everyone on earth, it seemed, on guitar. I remember getting the first <laughs> Cacophony album and just going, holy God. It, it, at first, I didn't realize there were two guitars on there, which made it even more insane. But um, do you find yourself comfortable with where you are as a player and more uh, interested in what you can do melodically as a songwriter, or do you still have guitar goals?
0: Uh, Well, guitar, you know, as it should be, you want to do new things, Mm -hmm. and um, not necessarily new complete directions or new sounds or anything, but uh, it's so important to visualize cooler things in your mind and mm-hmm. be able to uh, get those out from your mind to the instrument, to the recording, to the audience. And that's the goal. I mean, for example, if I if I have a song, for example, there's a song on Wall of Sound called The Blackest Rose. And that song, on this album, it was just kind of a, a very easy not a throwaway, I think it's a brilliant song I love it, but it just came very easy. Mm -hmm. Now that same exact song is something I could have done three, four years ago but it would have been an extreme effort, it would have been a beast to come up with that and produce it as well as I did and it would have been so much harder work back then but right now it just flows right out and they're much more adventurous and more difficult and more uh, uh, impressive to me pieces of music on the record, which means that um, something in the process is getting better. I mean, uh, I'm thinking of cooler things, and I'm able to get them out of my head and onto tape or onto paper mm-hmm. better than I did before, and that's really the only thing that I can really shoot for.
1: Sure. Uh, can you kind of rewind time back to how... Cacophony kind of came about. I mean, at the time, Shrapnel was kind of, you know, grabbing, uh, you know, the Tony McAlpines of the world, uh, incredible guitarist. But who had kind of the brainchild to put you and Jason together?
0: Well, it was actually the label. Um, I was getting ready to do a solo album, Mm -hmm. and and it was going to be my first solo album, and it was just going to be this huge, ambitious. Crazy, crazy thing that I'd worked on for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was about 80% done with it, the, the Mike Varney, the head of the label, says, You mm-hmm. got to meet this kid, Jason. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't care about meeting some kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm making my record, but uh, I didn't want to do anything that was going to dissuade Varney from making putting my record out. So I yeah. and met the guy. And I just fell so in love with Jason. That that uh, I wanted to figure out a way to get him into my project, mm-hmm. and even though the record was almost done, you know, I kind of made some space for him, and I used a couple of his ideas, and, and then that's how cacophony was
1: born. Now, at the I, time, I mean, I remember, you know, that era pretty well and you know it seemed like everyone knew the one guy who was the great guitarist but the one thing it seemed like every guitarist had other than big hair was a giant ego was <laughs> this How oh, I mean that had to be in, unless you're you're like an alien really difficult to let somebody else into your world like that um, you know
0: no actually um, one thing about Jason was when I met him he was I believe 16 or 17 16 mm-hmm. I think and he was so good but he didn't have a lot of band experience, right. and didn't have a lot of adulation, and that's what makes the ego. And right. so he was really, really super as a guitarist, but he had no ego at all. Right, he was like a non-musician. <laughs> yeah, um, and so that kind of made me fall in love with the guy. And and luckily for me, um, I kind of been over that ego period by right. myself. I mean. I went through it, of course. Sure. When I was like 16, I was in a band in, in a, a local band in Washington D.C. and we had we lived the rock star lifestyle at mm-hmm. 16 and and all of the the girls and the drugs and the adulation that you'd think that big guys get. Right. But we were just a local band, and and um, so I had full on ego back then. I just thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. And then uh luckily, I grew out of it somehow and um, and I realized that uh, I wasn't shit, <laughs> and um, I, I just uh, uh, became normal and and luckily, that's been good for me because uh yeah, having yeah. an ego kind of limits where where you wind up going and, and um, so I think I got over that by the time I was seventeen or eighteen as well.
1: Yeah, I always imagine if if Mike were to have like a label party at Shrapnel Records, that no one would actually talk because everyone would think they're the shit and not want to like, talk to any of the other guys.
0: I actually, was, a lot of those guys are equally nice. Um, I don't remember any of those guys really having egos. That's, um, that's cool. I always used to think that the people who are really good don't have time to develop an ego.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good, that's you know, a great way. They're too busy to...
0: working on their music, you know.
1: Uh, can you just touch a little? I mean, now here we are in twenty nineteen, um, and, and you just got to do a little bit of work with Jason. What it means to still have Jason, you know, with us at this time?
0: Oh my God, that's the the most inspiring, most inspiring thing that I have going on. You know what I mean? I mean, I mm-hmm. do my music and I do my work, and, and I am so thankful for it. But uh, Jason is giving us this music that, you know. It wasn't supposed to be there, according to many of the doctors mm-hmm. that you know had diagnosed him twenty five years ago. yeah, and um, this music is just literally a gift from somewhere, and uh, it's so beautiful and and hopefully something in the process of making the music is keeping Jason with us, and hopefully turning his situation around. I mean, I'm still, you know, really, really hoping for a miracle. And if anyone is due for a miracle, it's him. So uh, I, I'm just really happy that people are talking about it and enjoying the record. And uh, Yeah. And, um, you know, one day, you know, he and I will jam together. I mean, it's 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 so insane. I've had dreams about him and, and how we're just normally hanging out together and mm-hmm. stuff because I don't see him but I'm in constant contact with him and and working on music uh, via the internet and stuff so uh, to me he's just kind of like another one of my friends who if I were to just go to his house he'd be there right you know what I, mean? I, I don't through our correspondence I don't feel his limitations in the slightest right so I can fool myself into believing that uh you know, he doesn't have that condition Mm -hmm. because he never talks about it. He never harps on it, never complains about it. He's just so deep in this music that he's making and he's deep in caring about the people he cares about. And um, the guy really knows a lot about new music that's going on and Mm -hmm. he's really, really... He's alive, man, and uh, I really... Just them waiting for the day the miracle comes and he jumps up and jams with us
1: again. Yeah, that would be a, a beautiful thing. I, I remember so vividly, you know, hearing the, you know you were going with Megadeth, he was going with Dave Lee Roth, and hearing that, you know, uh, little ain't enough, and thinking, wow, you know, if anybody could go in and kind of step into Steve I and Eddie Van Halen ultimately shoes, Jason was such an awesome choice for that. And then, you know, the crushing news. Um, yeah, you know and it just floors me because that seems like a million years ago but yet yeah. here he's giving this gift of, of another album to us you know all these years later that's a yeah. that's a wonderful wonderful thing well, well what I don't, a great album it is yeah yeah it's it's you know there's an amazing mind in there and that's yeah. that's a, that's a great gift well, Marty i i don't want to keep you obviously uh, again you're coming into pittsburgh uh, One bad MF is available. Uh, live, the live album is available now. Uh, fantastic record. I really enjoy. You know, how, it's a guitar album, but it's it's so melodic that it's not you know a guitar geek record. It's it's something that you know. Oh, you I like
0: of, that. It, I'm going to use that phrase. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that it, it reminds me a, a lot of you know the melodic play of of like Joe Satriani, where it's you know you know he can turn on the, on the gas and, and you know shred with the best of them, but you know there's a song. Uh, you know, something you walk away—a melody that's in your head when you when you listen to that—and and I find that equally in your albums. And, uh absolute pleasure. We're looking very much forward to you coming into town. I hope we'll have a packed house for you, and it'll be great to hear some of this stuff live. Awesome. Look forward to seeing you there.
0: Iron Maiden, live. The Legacy of the Beast Tour 2019. Saturday, August 17th, PPG Paints Arena. Their biggest stage show. Their greatest songs. Your chance to be there. On sale now. Buy tickets at LiveNation.com. Be there to experience the power of Iron Maiden. Live. Live.
1: Heard a big thank you to Marty Friedman. Again, Marty Friedman will be in Pittsburgh as well as many other cities. You can check out Marty Friedman's website for all the details. But uh, for those of you in Pittsburgh, he will be at the Craft House Stage and Grill, which is on Curry Road in Pittsburgh, on February 17th. That's a show with Immortal Guardian and Leprosy. Uh, tickets are $20. Bucks. Uh, it should be a really nice night, very inexpensive ticket. Uh, for $70, bucks, uh, though, I, I urge you to consider... You get not only a ticket to the show, but uh, you get a meet-and-greet with Marty, uh, guitar picks, uh, you get a chance to chat with him, take photos, uh, and also a CD from Marty. So uh, really, as far as meet-and-greets go, um, I think that one's well worth it, 70 bucks. and I am sure there are a slew of people within earshot who want to get uh, Rust in Peace or Countdown to Extinction signed by Marty. So, something to consider. Uh, you can get those. I'll have a link for those on the show notes on uh, ironcityrocks.com. So, I invite you to check that out. So, we're going to turn our attention now to a guest we've had on the show in the past. Uh, you know him uh, as the producer of, of the great Inside Metal series of films uh, that, that uh, have been out for a number of years that really go into uh, the, the growth of L.A. Metal, the growth of Thrash Metal, uh, but this one's a little bit different. This is a, a film that Bob did called Band vs Brand, uh, which I found uh, to be fascinating. He sent me the DVD. Honestly, I put it in for a few minutes just to get an idea of what it was about, and before I know it, I had seen the entire film. Uh, it really, uh, I think, takes you inside the music as a business. Um, it's it's not just uh, you know, you know which bands are sold out. This is some intelligent discussion around how musicians should consider handling their affairs for longevity. Uh, and it's not told through the eyes of, of Gene Simmons and, and people who maybe people feel have done it to an excess. It's done through musicians, uh, maybe some lesser known musicians even, that teach you how to stay in the music business. Um, uh, one great example, uh, Mark Ferrari, who was in Kiel, um, maybe not a household name but someone who's made a very nice career in the music industry because he did things smart. Uh, so it, I think is a really fascinating uh, movie, uh, entertaining for those of you who are fans of music. But if you play an instrument in a band and have any aspirations of doing anything, it's worth the eleven ninety nine. Uh I think it is on Amazon. This movie comes out on February 12th. Uh, highly, highly recommend. As we discuss in here, it'll be available through streaming services. Uh, for those of you who are into that, or for those of us old-timers that like to actually have a disc, um, even though we're not going to have anything to play them on very much longer, uh, you can get the DVD on, on February 12th. So, without further ado, let's get into that interview with Bob Nobandian. Bandian. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the phone filmmaker, podcaster, and, and industry legend, Bob Nubandian. How you doing, Bob?
2: Doing great, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. It's been a couple of years since we spoke about uh, some of the Inside Metal uh, films. Uh, you have a, a new film I uh, hold in my hand that will be coming out on February 12th called Band Versus Brand. I know you guys had a uh, theater premiere at Nam. Um, man, I had a chance to watch the film and was really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Kind of, we start with what you know—the topic of of kind of branding a band. How did this idea for the film kind of hatch?
2: Well, I uh, I did the this film for Cleopatra. This is, <coughs> excuse me, my first film for Cleopatra Entertainment. And, uh, they're getting deep into doing movies. They're, they're, hmm. they got some great movies. They're, they've been, uh, you know, everyone knows Cleopatra as a record label. Sure. Uh, they, they've got really involved in, in doing films. And I met with the owner, Brian Pereira, who I, who I've known for a while, and I've known, uh, Tim Yasui, uh, who's also at the label, I knew him since he was at Metal Blade, like you know, twenty years ago or whenever he started Mm -hmm. there. So we've kind of got a relationship, and he was talking to me about doing some films. He was, uh, you know, he was a fan of the Inside Metal titles, and I was just in his office one day, and this was around the time when uh, you know Bobby Blotzer was going out under the Rat moniker, and uh, we were just kind of uh, you know talking about you know that and just kind of the. The, the current uh, bands out there touring and you know Quiet Riot with Benali and, and, and you know we're you know just kind of like laughing a bit like you know what's going on with these bands how are they able to do this and uh, you know and he said you know this would be interesting concept for, for a documentary would this be something uh, you would want to do Bob and I said yeah absolutely this is definitely uh, something um, that's uh, very relevant to, today especially within the you know, the hard rock And not, not just the classic rock But a lot of the right. 80s and metal bands, obviously You know, are, are going through this And going through the two different uh, uh, bands You know, going out under the same name And it's, uh, you know, it's all about the branding The name, everyone wants to own that name And it's, it's uh, uh, you know, with the hologram And everything that, that else that's going on I said, yeah, man, this would be I think I could definitely put something together And make a great movie out of this So uh, that's how that came to came together pretty
1: much did the relevance of the topic do you think it kind of exacerbated by the by the decline of actual physical product sales when it comes to you know new albums that you know it becomes more important for a band like rat to be in a bar on a weekend to make ends meet because you know the follow-up infestation may never come and even if it does come it may not sell you know does this kind of the the fight for the merchandising the publishing you know really get accelerated in your eyes
2: I don't know that's an interesting point John and I think uh, I, I believe it has affected uh, the brand because uh, uh, without the DVD or without the the record sales the CD mm-hmm. sales, obviously it does come down to touring and right. merchandise where the bands uh, need to make money and that is usually, comes down to, to the brand, the name, you know, yeah. uh, the name on the on the t shirt, the name, you know, on the marquee, and uh, so I, I do believe it it, it has uh, made that uh, worth for bands uh, that are trying to capitalize uh, in this day and age where you need to go out on the road, you need to sell merchandise, right. you can't rely on CD sales like like you did in the past. Mm-hmm. So um, and more bands are going out on the road. that's why you're seeing you know two different factions of of bands uh you know in some certain you know situations or you know just a a band going out with one member and uh you know band they you know they want to make money a lot of them do have the legal uh you know legal right to the name to go out under that name so uh whether it's um uh, legitimate to the fans or not is is, is another thing to whether it's, it's it's legal for them to do mm. so you know that that always becomes uh, you know a, a topic of of you know well they shouldn't be doing this or well you know and I've got the right to do it and uh, so uh, you know and that's kind of what this this movie focuses on it's it's about and I think it's a, a educational movie to to young musicians it's about the business you yeah. really need to know the business end of it because uh at the end of the day, you know, it could be thirty years down the road, but it comes down to the name and who owns the branding rights of that name, you know, and yeah. uh that's where it really um you know affects the pocketbook.
1: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. This I think, you know, right after learning Arpeggio should be something that musicians should worry about. You you look at um Steve I, I know just from different discussions. He's made a lot of money on Flexible, which was not, you know, dripped in platinum when it came out. It was, you know, kind of an indie release, but has made him quite a bit of money because he kept the rights to the whole thing. You know, he made a smart business move. But, you know, people don't necessarily think about that stuff. You just sign whatever it is. You know, here's a record contract. It's, You know, you're thinking limousines and champagne. And then 20 years later, you're broke. Um, do you... Um, your sense of, of this topic, I don't know you know, when we, we talk amongst podcasters or you know, some of the discussion boards that I'm sure you're involved with, I'm involved with we're dealing with really hardcore music fans um, but then I go to let's say a foreigner show or a KISS show, uh, two bands which are obviously lightning rods for criticism and there's 15-20,000 people there because they love the songs and they either don't know or don't care who's in the band it's just you know does it sound like his does it sound like foreigner do you think this this is maybe somewhat of a you know some of these arguments are more insider type things
2: well uh you're right the hardcore fan usually does know the difference but the mm-hmm. casual fan may or may not know who's mm-hmm. actually in Foreigner, or they may or may not care As you say, I think a lot of them, and this is something that's discussed in the movie, most casual fans today that grew up in that era just want to hear the songs the way they were played. And I think that's uh, another reason why the rise of tribute bands have have become so big. Yeah. Uh, you know they want to hear the songs uh, the the way they remember them and you know a lot of these bands that are up in age you know a lot of these bands from the 70s or even 60s or some even in the 80s mm-hmm. you know they're they're in their 60s and some in their 70s and they can't hit those registers you know vocally right. the way they used to or they can't play the drums the way they used to so uh you know sometimes it's better that uh you know to, to replace them in, in the eyes of the of you know the the person who owns that brand uh, the name yeah. you know uh, to make it sound uh, as as legit as possible I mean there's a section in the movie where you know we were talking about I believe with with Brian Brinkerhoff who was interviewed about so many of the the, the bands back in the day if you replace the singer you never thought about getting a a a, 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 a singer that sounds ex- and looks exactly like the old singer you know you right. would. Uh, you know, when we talked, uh, talked about, you know, Black Sabbath getting Dio, uh, you know, who couldn't have been more different than Ozzy or, you yeah. know, Van Halen getting Sammy Hagar and, you know, Anthrax getting John Bush and, you know, uh, nowadays, you know, the artists want the singers. Uh, if they replace a singer to sound just like the old singer and a lot of the times they want them to look and act and uh, you know their stage presence to be like and so it's it is, it is definitely different I think it's kind of uh, kill the creative process and again that comes down to how records aren't selling you're, you're not gonna uh, there, a lot of bands I figure they figure there's no point to really continue on creatively uh, creatively because yeah. uh you know, releasing new records aren't going to sell, so they just want to uh, uh, basically um, continue. Uh, There's you know, riding the success of, of their past, uh, you know, hits and
1: yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at you know, you guys talk about Journey in the film quite a bit, but it, it doesn't benefit them to go out and get you know even you know somebody like jeff scott soto and maybe do an album that doesn't sound like steve perry it it doesn't make sense but yet you put a guy who can hit those notes uh highly energetic great story you know they're playing twenty thousand seaters um you know all across the country one of the 10 most profitable tours of the year with a replacement singer but it wasn't because they went out and got you know somebody 180 different from um, Steve, you know, and, and you look at like Iron Maiden, you know, they, they were able to go with a totally different singer when they went from Paul to... um Bruce, yeah. To Bruce, but then fast forward however many years it was when they got Blaze, they couldn't do that again. You know, right. that, that didn't work the second time, and I think you know, sometimes it, it makes a difference on who the singer is, but in a lot of cases, people want to hear the hits. Look at, you know, Queensryche. They got a guy who can sound like Jeff did in 1986 not uh you know somebody totally different um but but in, in all I think you know a lot of people just fill these venues because they want to hear the songs they've got a night out they've got a sitter you know they love the greatest hits albums or you know whatever band it is and they want to go see live music now you know it does get a little I know from my own personal uh story you know the first time i saw foreigner was in i don't even know what year it was 2013 something like that and it was very excited to go see him love their music and was actually shooting the show with the camera and i'm looking around going, okay which one's mick you know because i don't i mean i've seen pictures of mick from the 70s but you know obviously doesn't look the same now and i'm like well he's not here yeah you know unless you got really long hair and a perm he's not here and uh you know, I was like, at this point, I'm watching, you know, kind of a hair metal all star band. Um, but then, 20 minutes in the show, I'm like, this is really good. You know, these are great songs performed by a really good band. Um, you know, so I kind of drank the Kool Aid with, with that and, and have uh, seen them with Mick, and it really, they don't miss a beat without them. Um, yeah,
2: you know, it's the people are entertained, and yeah. and, and it sounds like. How they want it to sound. I, I think the fans, in most cases, are, are usually uh, uh, cool with it. I mean, of course, there's you know certain diehards, you know, yeah. you know, uh, you know, no Lou Graham, no foreigner kind right. of thing, and 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 I get that too. But you know, when it comes to the future, it's you're looking at what's going to go on with the future and what they're doing with the hologram, and if it, it makes you wonder if these brands uh, after they're dead and gone, if they're just going to live on the next you know, 50 years would just, you know, other replaces. It's basically about who owns that brand, who owns the estate after the person passes and who are, uh, actually ever, uh, who owns that estate really has the right, in, in a sense, to do what they want to do. You know, I yeah. mean, a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of controversy about what Wendy Dio is doing with with Ronnie with the hologram. People say, oh, yeah. Ronnie never want that and, you know, but she's got the rights uh, to, to do it, you know, so, uh, you know, and and you know, we get into that. We interview people from the Dio disciples, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think you know a lot of the fans think it's a great thing, and it, and it gives them the memory of Ronnie James Dio, and especially people that haven't seen Ronnie James Dio. So you know, it, it is a con It's it's not you know. I, I and the thing is, I didn't go about doing this documentary to to make it look good or look bad. It's just right. objective it is what it is and you know some people can relate to it some people just can't and you know i'm an old school guy so you know for me some of this stuff is kind of like you know since i've seen all these bands back in the days Mm -hmm. you know i was you know fortunate to see all these you know classic hard rock bands of the 70s you know to me it might not be that interesting but for a younger kid you know i it, it it, you know i could see how it, it you know makes the legend live on and yeah.
1: So, yeah i think i think it was neely who said in the film you know he was able to see you know all these bands so this doesn't necessarily interest him but i take somebody like pink floyd for example and i i was a little too young to really care about fling pink floyd uh when they were still doing what they do um so, for me, you know, one of my first live experiences with Pink Floyd music was a Pink Floyd tribute band that just blew my mind. Um, you know, so it's a little bit different, but yet if I someone said, hey, come and see a Van Halen tribute band, I don't want to see that because I saw Van Halen. Um, and I think sometimes that maybe plays into it. You know, most of us didn't get to see Queen. Uh, so, therefore, you know, maybe a Freddie Mercury style tribute show might be appealing or Led Zeppelin. Um, but when you've, when you've seen the real thing and you have that memory... Um, but then sometimes maybe the memory's strong enough, if you can't go see them now, maybe that's the, you know, the next best thing is to go relive some of those memories by seeing a, a Led Zeppelin tribute band or dream, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Elvis impersonators have been doing it forever. Um, yeah. You know, they make the money. Um, the hologram, did you have an opportunity to see the Dio show?
2: I have not. No, I've never seen. I've actually never seen a show with the hologram. So, uh, you know, so for me to say, uh, you know, I I can't really say because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, I again, I'm not that into it. I, mm. you know, I'm like Gus G said. I, I would want to see it to get a better opinion. Yeah. Uh, of, of of what it is and what it's about. It would be interesting to see, but it's not something i i'm a, a huge fan of uh, so to speak i'm i'm more into seeing you know the real deal you know seeing you know people in their flesh and blood on stage but uh you know it's interesting you know yeah
1: yeah i think one of the things that you know i think brings about a lot of this is that there doesn't seem to be a next wave of kind of rock stars you know kind of Filtering in. I mean, there are bands, you know, from the '90s that were obviously still doing quite well, the Allison Chains and things like that. But you don't see a lot of of bands, you know, especially in the rock genre, that can fill arenas with you know new current music. And I think some of that might lead to the demand for this stuff. Oh, absolutely, you know.
2: absolutely. that definitely has uh, an effect, and I think that is why uh, primarily you're seeing a lot of this. You don't see the arena rock bands like you have in the past. I think. The last real big, you know, when it comes to hard rock and metal, uh, you know, I mean, you, you do have bands like Avenged Sevenfold and stuff mm-hmm. like that are still out there touring. But you know, since then, you know, Ghost has kind of reached that level now, which, which yeah, is, it's always good to see you know bands still doing it. But I, I I don't blame the band so much. It's it's the way the industry is and the yeah. way that they're not. You know, there's no radio that's pumping new rock bands. You know, uh, you yeah. know they consider. Uh, these uh, bands, uh, Imagine Dragons, is a rock mm. band that's not rock at all. You know, right. and all the newer bands that are out there that has nothing. You know, singing through an auto tuner and, and all this bullshit. That's not rock and roll. So what people consider rock today is completely different. Of you know, when I when I'm saying you know good arena rock bands. Uh, you know, the, you know the ACDCs, the Judas Priest, the Iron Maidens—is that you, you're you're not getting those anymore? So, it's uh, it it definitely has an effect on it, you know.
1: Yeah, and some of that I think might come back. You know, we we had a poll question for our users the other day. You know, give us a band who their best album was after their fourth album, and it was interesting because you didn't see a lot of you know kind of lightweight bands most of the answers to that question where someone threw it in it was it was sabbath it was floyd it was these huge bands that had time to develop and, and you know without you know the the record labels of the world um in, in that model you don't see a lot of bands getting the time Absolutely. to to make their seminal album their fifth their sixth their seventh album they're either you know they're either white hot right out of the gate or they're done by the third album
2: Well, yeah there's no longevity left and that has to do with you know the labels not I mean even back in the 80s and 90s uh, yeah. it, it was all about they wanted the the debut records to go platinum you right. know otherwise it, they, they didn't build the band's career, and and nowadays you don't have the radio. The radio aren't playing, and I, I think that has a lot to blame because now it's all about social media and going on Spotify, and right. uh, so it's whatever's being pushed by these influencers or whoever they call it. You know that's uh uh you know is 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 pushing the the amount of views and the um, you know uh, on social media and whatnot. So you're not getting these new bands and even the old bands that put out new records are getting the love from the radio stations. So that too is why, you know, people are just wanting to hear the classics go back because they want something they're familiar with. But, you know, I think if, you know, uh, if the new, uh, say Judas Priest or the new uh, latest Deep Purple album, they were playing songs on the radio from these albums, people would be familiar with and go, oh yeah, this is cool, and you know. But that's not happening anymore. So that, yeah. that's that factor as well.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I know in the in the market we're in, um, there are you know just a handful, less than five rock radio stations, and and honestly, I can count on one finger the amount of times I've heard the new Judas Priest album on terrestrial radio. Um, but you know. It was like, and I remember being in the car and I heard it, I was like, damn, that's really, really good and, you know, you think, okay however many people like me that heard it, you know really got excited about the album, but it was a one and done kind of thing you know yeah. you don't hear you know, special show. <laughs> yeah it was probably some fluky thing at night but I mean you look at bands like the Stones who who did a really awesome blues album I never heard it on the radio um, anything that Springsteen's done recently not on the radio well, that's But the point.
2: Yet- it, it doesn't even apply to the to the hard rock and metal bands we're talking the biggest bands in the world yes and, you exactly know, it, it it you know I, I don't get that i just don't understand what is going on with with radio and why uh uh you know I, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me
1: yeah you're absolutely right i mean you take a, a band you know like the rolling stones with their album and but yet you could hear pretty much hit seek on your radio you know couple times a day and come across a Rolling Stone song, but you're not going to hear each that new album.
2: Burn over, yeah. They, maybe yeah. each band will have like three or four uh, uh, songs. And even back in the day, the radio would be experimental and play kind of the B-sides and whatever. Not anymore. It's like each band, you got... You know, the regular Def Leppard hit songs, the regular yeah. ACDC hit songs. They're not going to go deep. They're not going to play Sin City or uh, other stuff like that. If they play anything Bon Scott, it's going to be Dirty Deeds or TNT, right. you know, and yeah. that's it.
1: Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons one of the stations in our city, uh, they play music I absolutely love, but they play it with such repetitiveness yep. that I can't take... Six songs, the same six songs from Led Zeppelin, and the same seven from Stevie Ray Vaughan all day long. So I just choose not to listen to it uh, because I want the deep cuts. I need variety, you know, great musicians, but I can't hear, you know, the Immigrant Song that many times a day. Yeah. Um, That. uh, But it it does it, it makes it very difficult, you know, for these bands. So at that point, they're not making new music. So you know that's why you see these bands. Hawking T-shirts in Walmart. Sure.
2: Um, well, there's nothing ever personal anymore about radio, or even like what they when they had MTV, but like radio, uh, you know, used to the the DJs. Uh, it was a you know locally they would go out and promote the shows, the local bands. They would yeah. go out and do live broadcasts at you know the local clubs. I remember in L.A. we had the station KNAC and the the, the mm-hmm. DJs were great. They were always pumping the new bands and and saying who was playing it and and you don't have that anymore everything on radio is automated yeah you know? uh, and even mtv they had the, you know the headbangers ball tour you know mm-hmm. grim reaper armored saint and uh, halloween and whatever they would pump all this the, these things you don't have any outlets like that anymore so but, yeah. <laughs> excuse me it's um it's really difficult, man. You know, it's, it's, it's the changing of times, man. You have to deal with, you know, the the, the new technology and Spotify and, uh, you know, uh, YouTube and social media, and that's mm-hmm. the way to promote through now. So
1: Yeah, and it is. You, you need kind of a dedicated social media staff or an IT staff, yeah. you know, and I'm sure most of these large bands have that.
2: a lot of shit out there because it, it doesn't really matter how good these artists are it's mm. just a matter of how many views they get. And, yeah. you know, you see these top, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, and not even music, just, you know, idiots on YouTube doing stuff, getting 10 million views, you know. Uh, yeah. Because they have a bunch of idiots just keep clicking and, and viewing and they become famous. And that's the that's, that's just the reality of, of how it is today. It doesn't matter if you could play or not. You don't even have to play an instrument, you know. it's Yeah. Uh, if, if, you know if, if you could get enough views and enough hits and enough plays you could become successful so
1: yeah and you're exactly right I think that that uh, one kid who got himself in trouble for going around that um, suicide area in Japan kind of proved yeah, that yeah. that any again anybody, uh, yeah anybody with a so with about. a camera can make uh, yeah. make money on YouTube but uh, it does take away I think a lot <laughs> but um, so when when you're putting together a film like this um just an idea like kind of what goes into the process i mean obviously you've got a a host of of guests which i'm sure with your with your contacts in the industry uh was you know still even a lot of work to con, con coordinate all that was was that uh, how, how long of a period of time were these interviews spanning would you say
2: Well, it was about a two-year period, and uh, we did this one, you know, after doing the Inside Metal series, those were the first time I ventured into movie documentary making, so I I didn't really have a clue when I did that, and, you know, we just interviewed a slew of people, you know, Mm -hmm. and just got as many, and and then that's why those ended up being two volumes each, movies, Mm -hmm. so. I didn't want to make that mistake. I said, uh, and it wasn't about getting the big names. You know, we we did approach some of the bands. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, you should have got, you know, Rat or Queensryche or you know bands that have gone through. We, we did get Jack Russell. You know, right. and, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, the bands that are actually going through with the two names. You know, if bands are in litigation and all that, they're they're not going to want to be interviewed.
1: You know, no, so. they probably want to stay away from that topic as much Absolutely. as they can.
2: They, so a lot of people, and again, this was done like two years ago when, when all this stuff was hot, uh, uh, all these, so, you know, it, it was difficult to get, you know, uh, and we didn't, I didn't want to get it with bands that are going to feud uh, and and talk shit about each other. Oh, this guy doesn't have the right name, this guy's yeah. an asshole, they fuck this guy, uh, you know. It, yeah. I, I know it would have g- gotten a lot of more exposure. I bet on all the news sites. I'm sure, right. you know, uh, so and so slams so and so. That seems to be the uh, the big thing on the news sites these days. But you know, I'm above that. I like to think, and and I think we've uh, e- even with Jack Russell, he took a very classy approach, and you know, he, it, it, it's basically just. Talking about the way it is, you know, yeah. and, uh, and and uh, th- that's what I want. I want an artist that can portray that, and not just artists. Half the people in the movie are, are in the industry. People like Mike Varney, you know, Brian Brinkerhoff, David Ted's, you know, Adam Parsons, who's a manager. So we, we you know, we, we got different perspectives, different perspectives uh, from different people. And and again, it wasn't about getting the big name people. Mm-hmm. It was just about people that have gone through. You know, this with branding and who I thought were interesting and who were available. You know, we did, yeah. uh, you know, a, a few of them here in the Bay Area where I'm living now, and uh, a lot of them at NAM two years ago. Uh, a lot of them were done there. And then we did, we took a trip to Vegas where we interviewed uh, Adam Parsons and uh, Frank Domino and a couple other people. So, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was done pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, after we got everything together, I said, you know what? shit, we got, I got enough to, to make a movie. There's no point getting other people in that are just going to kind of repeat the same thing that's already right. been said. Mm. And then, you know, my, my editors and co-producer, Danny Shipman, works with Reality Check TV. He's like, Bob, you know, we've got some stuff that we filmed, uh, you know, archive footage that would fit perfect. So he came in with uh, some... Uh, you, you might have noticed some of the uh, scenes that had Danny and Ace interviewing people where they were in the camera. Uh, sure. With like Venom and, and uh, Fee, Fee Weeble from the Tubes and um, uh, Matt Ross the Boss and uh, a, a couple other ones that uh, that uh, they uh, uh, were nice enough to, uh, to uh, include in this movie. So that kind of filled in the gaps that... Uh, uh, we, we needed uh, filled, and uh, so that worked out pretty well. And then they provide a lot of other footage, so uh, overall, it was it was a pretty pretty pleasant and pretty smooth experience.
1: Now, when you're doing this and you you've compiled all this, um, who has the task? Is is this your role, or is this more an, an editor to go through and piece it all together so it makes sense and has sort of a, a flow to it because i can imagine that's got to be an extremely arduous task to sit through you know I, I know from my own interviews you know you're like okay like four or five minutes in, he said something that might have been interesting or you know to to try to go through and do all that i mean to, to string it together is that your role or does someone else get
2: yeah i well, the films i direct uh, i uh uh and and that is the toughest task it's and the most tedious task sometimes, yeah, to go through everything. Uh, and again, that's why on on vs. brand, I didn't want to make the mistake of some of the inside metal titles, like especially the second one we did, uh, uh, L.A. Metal Scene explodes. Man, we had you know so much footage that mm-hmm. Carl and I went through. So you know I uh, you know and, and and the inside metal, I had Carl, my editor, and. Uh, uh, or, and my editors Curtis and stuff help me go through the stuff but I basically I go through all the footage um, and I, I give them the, the time codes of what uh, what I think would work in the movie right. and then we try to sequence it together we cut it all out and then kind of sequence it try to build the chapters and then it's just kind of like putting a puzzle together and that's yeah. when they, they assist me a lot you know Uh, uh, Danny and Hugh on this movie uh, 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 Hugh McKenzie who was uh, one of the editors for this from Reality Check, he had a real good vision and he would say, you know what, let's maybe piece this here and piece this there Mm -hmm. and switch it so I I did have a lot of assistance but I would kind of uh, put the initial notes together and then we would kind of go through and see if it flows good, and, and that's the kind of the key is you just gotta gotta watch it and see how it flows. Right. And So, um, uh, yeah, it, it 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 comes down to me putting it together, and then I have uh, other people in that assist me, uh, my editors and and co producers and stuff. Uh, so uh, it works good. It's it's a good working relationship.
1: Yeah, I, I know, I mean, just from, again, my own experience, interviewing people can be the fun part, you know, for the most part. I mean, there's people out there that it's a pain to interview, but to yeah. look at what you ended up with, you know, with an hour and, what, 18 minutes or whatever it was, the film, to, to put that together just looked so hard. You yeah. Because people, you know, they go off in tangents and things like that in interviews, you know how it is. Uh, and, you know, so you end up, okay, I'm not going to be able to use that or you know, luckily in this one you don't have to worry about you know, expletives and things like that um, but you know, it really came out nice uh, Very, oh, thanks, I right. think an extremely educational film and something like, uh, I think we, we kind of touched on earlier, if you're, you're interested in the music business um, you know, even even if you just watch the Mark Ferrari portions of this film you can learn a ton about you know, making a living in it. In the industry, uh, as opposed to just being kind of a you know one and done kind of musician, so it's I think a, a film you guys should be very very proud of.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought Mark Ferrari up because that's another interesting angle is, is the publishing now where yeah. he's really got a made a gold mine. He I think he started it back in the he started back in the 90s in the mid 90s as Master Source, and uh, now it's become a huge thing to place music. You see music now in commercials all the time. Yeah. Where before, I remember the first time they did like a Beatles song and a commercial that was like, oh my God, what are they doing? This is, you know, it was like a huge deal. And now you're hearing songs by, you know, Twisted Sister and Foghat. And, you know, I mean, uh, so many bands that, and that's a huge thing. And owning the master rights and the master licensing fee uh, to that, yeah. that's a, a whole other in, a whole other thing about branding is going in and re-recording uh, songs. And that's another you know, publishing is another huge, huge aspect of of, of how to uh, uh, make money. Uh, yeah, music business.
1: And I remember. I think the first I had heard of a band, you know, kind of re-recording their own stuff. If I'm not mistaken, was Rat. And, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I thought they had re-recorded "Round and Round" to be used in that Mickey Rourke yeah, movie, the Wrestler.
2: That was actually a Cleopatra uh, record, yeah. and that was very smart because I. I, I you know, it's funny you say that because I remember watching the the Wrestler. And I'm listening to it, I go, Oh, cool, right. I'm going, Well, this sounds a little bit different. Right. You know, it sounds just just a little different. And it was a re record. And yeah. that way the band could have the the you know, the the publishing will always go the the, the the publishing, but as far as their uh uh the 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 mastering licensing fee, they don't have to go through Atlantic Records and right. the, you know, uh they could just sell them the new recording and make a hell of a lot more money.
1: Right. Yeah, I remember, and it's funny, you know, a lot of musicians don't even seem to really be aware of, you know, some of that stuff. I know in interviewing a member of Kix not that long ago, uh, discussing, you know, they had re-released and uh, remastered uh, "Blow My Fuse," right. and and I had asked, you know, did you have to get permission from Atlantic Records to do this because it's out on a new label? Um, no idea, you know, and that just it surprises me. Wow, you know, there's right. a certain
2: amount of time, like 25 years or something, I mm-hmm. think the rights do revert back. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that works, and that might be, depend on, on the deal that they signed, but right. uh, I do know that's why you're seeing a lot of these 80s bands going back. And was this a re-record that they did? Of no,
1: they actually went back, I think, to the original recordings, but had remixed and remastered it. They
2: might, their their rights might have kicked back where they actually mm. owned the masters now, because yeah. usually after, like, 25, 30 years or something, you, you know, uh, that you know that happens. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but it, yeah. it is interesting how that, uh, you know, people don't realize that, how, how publishing works, and I think... Uh, David Ted's talks about uh, uh, Billy Squire, how he always yeah. kept his publishing, never sold it, whereas so many bands from the 80s or, or whatever, they figured their time was up, so they just mm-hmm. took one lump sum and sold it all off, and now here, uh, uh, Billy Squire's is just making a fortune, because all these, I guess all these hip-hop bands have, have uh, sampled The Stroke, and they right. you know, used his songs in movies and whatever, and you know, So he's still making a killing off his brand. So.
1: Yeah, I, I always say this. I don't know who wrote this song, but whoever owns the publishing to Katrina and the waves walking on sunshine must be just dripping in money because you'll never see a song used in more film, commercial, TVs, everything. That song is yeah. just everywhere. Like. That's that's a goldmine. I don't want to be the person that has to sleep around on a tour bus 300 days a year. I want to be the person that writes some song that just won't go away and and retains the publishing to it. That's
2: that's the key. Songwriters are the ones. uh, You know, it's funny people think of one-hit wonders, but you know a lot of times these even like the 80s. You know, you got Mm -hmm. different. You know, the 80s were bringing a lot of uh, uh, songwriters. Uh, You know, Bon Jovi had. um, Ah, guys, what's the guy's name?
1: Yeah, it's right yeah. on the tip of my tongue, yeah. too. Yeah, uh,
2: but, I mean, so many had these outside songwriters that would uh, write all their music. So, yeah, it, it's yeah. Uh, it's a big business, for sure.
1: Big business. Well, Bob, I don't want to keep any longer. Uh, again, the movie comes out on the 12th. This will be available. Um, will this go the Amazon and Netflix route, or is this yeah, physical it, property?
2: It, it will be out it? on DVD. You can pre-order the DVD now through Amazon. Uh, and then it should go I don't know if it's going to go digital on the 12th Sometimes they wait a week After the DVD release But it will be on Amazon Prime uh, Google Play I don't know about Netflix Netflix is always a hard one We're going to a cable pay-per-view uh, uh, Tons of all, all the pay-per-view providers Should be carrying it And that will be going on in February as well And uh, hopefully we'll get picked up by You know, Access and uh, access tv and pluto and some of the other uh uh you know uh, uh, digital outlets out there but uh it'll definitely be available so uh, just just google it and uh, uh check it out february 12th it'll be out worldwide
1: awesome well thank you bob I, I i'm sure we'll be talking down the road soon when when your next film comes out and it's always a pleasure man
2: always john i appreciate it man
1: all right that about wraps up this episode of iron city rocks episode 402 we invite you to check us out at ironcityrocks.com we're on instagram facebook youtube twitter are all forward slash iron city rocks you can get a hold of us at ironcityrocks at com. again marty friedman will be in pittsburgh to do a show on the 17th we'll have a link uh, if you go to ironcityrocks.com and then click on episode 4 or 2, we'll have a link to where you can buy tickets. Uh, if you're not in Pittsburgh, we certainly welcome you and glad you're listening to the show. He's coming, I am certain, to your town because he seems like he's going to every town on this string of dates. So a great chance to see an amazing, amazing musician. Also, we touched on the Jason Becker album, with it, which is available now. Um, can't recommend that highly enough. And also... Uh, Bob Nambandian with Band vs. Brand, which is available from Cleopatra Records. It'll be on DVD on the 12th, and uh, keep an eye out for the streaming version of that on Amazon Prime, and as he mentions, potentially Netflix, but uh, Amazon Prime, I think everyone has that anymore, so check that out. And, and for those of you not aware, there are quite a few good movies on Amazon Prime for music fans. Uh, probably almost as many or more than than netflix there used to be a time where netflix was an awesome place for a music fan because they had dvds like crazy uh in the music genre uh but uh, that's kind of all kind of gone by the wayside there's a few out there but not uh since they went to stream there's a few good films but not as many as there used to be so uh amazon prime probably has just as many if not more titles in the music genre than netflix does so Check that out. And until next time, we want to thank you so much for listening.